Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Lord God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, let our souls tell out the glory of what you have done, what you are and, and who you are. Lord, grant us that humility to sit under your word, the written word and even more, the living word, which is Christ. Speak to us this morning, we pray. Draw us closer to yourself and indeed to each other. And our aim is one. Your name be raised. Your name be exalted. Amen. Please take a seat. Please forgive the rather understated attire this morning. I struggled whether I should bring a jacket or not, but for a tropical animal, the uh, temperature is a bit too low, so I decided to go with a sweater, but I do have a tie (laughs) to fulfill all righteousness, and you'll be impressed to know it's actually a fullwood tie, which has been worn when preaching in churches in various parts of Southeast Asia, so I think I can fulfill enough righteousness anyway to get by this morning. (laughs) Let me just change my glasses so I can see uh, what I have prepared for you. One thing I wanted to say when Paul was interviewing me was just to express the thanks of our family, my wife and myself and the children, for the remarkable uh, support that Fullwood Church has been giving to us all these years. It, it's, it's a strange thing to walk up Canterbury Avenue and meet people and people ask you, how is so-and-so and how is this and how is that? And you realize that many people actually are really deeply involved in praying and supporting and, and everything else, and that's, that's remarkable. And on the floor of the bedroom I was in in Paul and Olive German's house last night, there's a leaflet which is entitled something like Serving by Sending or something. And that is a remarkable thing, that when you serve by sending, you're part of the mission team. You're part of what goes on in Southeast Asia if you support and send from here. So many, many thanks indeed. It would be very helpful if you'd open your Bibles at Luke chapter 1. And we had quite a decent chunk of that read to us, which gives us some of the background of what I want to speak on. But I'll be speaking on the the very last section, 46 to 55. So if you open that, you'd be in a very good place as we go through the text. So in a sense, why preach a sermon on Mary? It's kind of a strange thing for good evangelical Protestants. Well, first, of course, Christmas is upon us, and this passage is very appropriate as we think about the birth of Christ. And we know that the song of Mary is her response to the Annunciation when the angel told her of the remarkable things that were to happen to her and through her. So in that sense, of course, it's a very timely passage. Now, of course, some of you, the sticklers, may argue, I should have come here and preached this nine months ago, but you know what I mean. But another reason is that Mary is still a controversial figure for Protestants, and I would like to see her rehabilitated. In some Orthodox and Catholic circles, so much is said about Mary that we cannot agree with, that all too often our response is to be afraid, almost, of mentioning her. This is sad, I think, as we neglect a very important figure in Christian history. And the final reason I lied to the second is that Mary is in fact an example to us all for her faith, devotion, and single-mindedness. There is so much that we can learn from her response to the angel's message. And in fact, her faithfulness to to God, her own son, and the commission which is given to her continue right through her life and that of her son. 
So in many ways, she's a model of faith expressed in action, and I want to commend her to you. Now, we know from Luke's gospel that Mary's song comes after the angel appears and tells her she will be with child. And the angel gives her some rather sketchy and frankly probably rather scary information about what kind of child it will be. If you go back and read that, it would be very scary indeed, I think, for a woman to to hear those things said to her, especially a faithful Jewish woman. And remember, when she asks the angel, how will I be with child? What will this be like? It's a question based in faith. And it's very different from the doubtful response of Zechariah to the announcement that his wife will have a child. So you get an inkling of the incredible faith of this young woman at the end of her exchange with the angel in Luke 1.38. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I think those are remarkable words for a woman of her status, of her background in that remarkable situation. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. There's a trust here in God's plan, protection and provision, which I personally find deeply challenging. Now, I think naturally she would have gone back uh, when she was alone and done a lot of thinking. And I'm sure she would have had concerns and worries. She wouldn't have been human if she didn't. But that statement at the end of the exchange encapsulates for me her attitude of faith. You see, she would have looked to God not just during the time of pregnancy and the birth, but also she would have depended on him and his love and guidance in a special way as the child grew older and matured, and indeed as his life and ministry brought ever greater challenges to him and to his mother. And then following this, you have this delightful time written very, very briefly, that Mary and Elizabeth have together. And I just love this record of the unborn John the Baptist leaping in his mother's womb when he senses Mary approaching with the Messiah in in hers. It's wonderful. And I love Elizabeth's comment, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Mary really is a case of faith, being certain of what we do not yet see, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us. And it is well known that there are parallels between Mary's song here, the Magnificat, and the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. You remember how the despondent Baron Hannah cried out to the Lord for a son and how she promised God that if he blessed her with one, she would offer him to God for service in a special way. So you can see these parallels here. Both are women of great faith who threw themselves on God's mercy in expectant faith. And their faith was real to them. It was the stuff of everyday life the difficult and challenging life of ordinary women in a difficult, demanding agricultural society. They didn't have the luxury of separating their daily life here and their faith over here into neat compartments, as we sometimes do today. Now, as a mere man, I cannot share on the depths of a woman's love for that which has grown inside her. But as a father, I know that children involve a long-term commitment and an investment on, on multiple spiritual, emotional, and material fronts. So I find it quite striking that in these two examples, faith is brought to us through the lens, if you like, of parenthood and especially motherhood. Faith is kind of made real, if you like, by this issue of parenthood and motherhood. It's putting your faith where your mouth is, if you like. And now to Mary's song, starting at Luke 1:46. My soul glorifies the Lord in verse 37, verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. As I wrestle with the passage, I ask myself, how exactly does the soul of this young woman glorify the Lord? You see, the whole matter of her pregnancy is yet to be a public thing, as hardly anybody knows her. 
So initially, it seems to me this is a very precious kind of quiet or, or private glorification in which a person commits themselves and enjoys God's presence and desires to serve him. This is a glorification which comes when a person brings himself or herself into God's orbit, an act of will, into an act of worship and submission to his purposes. It is the natural response of a heart which looks beyond itself and seeks to align itself with eternity, with God's eternity. It is the identification of the whole person with the holiness, love, and righteousness of God. As God sees our trust in and responds to him, even first initially in the quiet of our own heart, in a room on our own, he is glorified. And coming together with this is her spirit rejoicing. And it feels right to me that they go together. This, this glorification and this rejoicing come together. When our souls glorify the Lord in submission, in obedience, and acceptance of his will, which, let's face it, is not always easy, this comes together with rejoicing. Trust and obey, as the old song says. But there's actually a little more here, and it connects back to God as the recipient of glory. You see, so often when we serve the Lord and give our time and energy to him, and we see people turning to him or being encouraged in their spiritual walk, we find ourselves rejoicing, do we not? It's a kind of a curious thing. Some years ago, when we still lived in Sheffield, I used to go to the United States to help a campus group in their work with mainland Chinese students. And I used to go over there once a year, and every time we went, we worked very, very hard, teaching, preaching, answering questions, and I remember at the end of one of those days, I was very, very tired. And as I went to bed, I had this sense of supernatural joy welling up from within because God had used me for his purposes. God had used me for his agenda, but I got a sense of joy out of it. It's a curious thing. And the next day, another one of the Chinese inquirers came to me and said, why are you here and what do you get out of it? by coming and talking to us about all this stuff. And he wanted to know about my motivation. And I said to him, look, I'm not here to, to impress God by how many people I talk to or earn brownie points by, by serving long hours. That's not what it's about at all. I said, my motivation is very simple. I want to let you know about this gospel so that you can have what, what I have. I want to bring you to know him. It's nothing to do with me. So he said, so what you're telling me is you get nothing out of this at all apart from leaving your wife and children at home and flying seven hours to the U.S. and being very tired. I said, yes, that's right. And he was confused. And so I shared with him this incredible sense of joy from the previous day. And I told him that I, I was just a bridge or, or a link here between him and God. And I would get nothing out of this myself, but I was overjoyed to be used of God for his purposes, for his glory, to bring people to know him. And this Chinese man was... I can't think of a word to describe it. He was overwhelmed. He didn't understand where all this was coming from. As someone from a more transactional kind of Buddhist background, you're doing this for nothing. You get nothing out of this, and you're happy about it. Now, I'm nowhere near as spiritual as Mary. But in this kind of feeling, I have a glimpse, I think, of the joy that she felt as she was about to serve God in this very special way, just because of who God is. And I wonder what Mary went, meant by the idea of God as her saviour. And I think this goes back to this very, very rich understanding of the, Jew, the Jewish people of trusting God for deliverance and the belief that he will be the basis of our righteousness before him. 
It, it's about shalom, a person being complete and acceptable before God. And it also connects back with God's delivering of his people from Egypt at the Exodus. You know, this, this communal memory of God's deliverance from ethnic and physical slavery doesn't mean much to us modern Christians, although it remains highly significant for our Jewish friends. Yet we also are the seed of Abraham. And in a way, we are just as much children of the Exodus as Mary was. And the Exodus in, in, out of Egypt also points forward to the establishment of the kingdom of God. And three decades or so after Mary spoke these words, as Jesus underwent the transformation before his disciples, the transfiguration, I'm sorry, and showed them the true glorious reality of his nature, he connected this with the greater exodus that he was about to undergo and bring in for his people. This deliverance from sin and fear for all of us. And Mary goes on in the first half of verse 48. She links her feelings with her own humble state, the humble state of his servant. And she's telling us that God has been mindful. God has taken account of her humble or lowly state. And I guess you can read humble in two ways. One is that Mary was a humble, that is, not proud person. And the other is that she was humble in circumstance. And I think the original text argues perhaps slightly more in favor of the second, although the two ideas are connected. But we're reminded again of this Egypt Exodus theme. As we think about how God spoke to Moses in Exodus 3 and how we'd seen the desperate, lowly, humble state of his people. And the servant in this verse looks from Mary to Israel and, of course, by extension, to the suffering servant of Isaiah, who is Christ. And we could spend many hours talking about the servant motif in this passage, but, of course, we cannot. Now, we are not saying here that God extends his salvation to people because they are humble. We need to be careful with that. After all, if we took this too far, it would undermine the idea of salvation by grace. God does not save us because we are humble. But at the same time, Luke's gospel especially has this theme of God's special option for the poor. And I think throughout scripture, to understand who God is and accept his message of salvation for us is inextricably bound up with a humble attitude. The poor in spirit of the Beatitudes are those who understand their sinful state and their inability to stand righteous before God. Humility, recognition of one's true standing before God is surely part of what we need if we are to receive his salvation by faith. And God's choice of Mary because of this humble state in both senses is a kind of pointer also to Christ, the humble son of the glorious God, who emptied himself and became a man, who was born in a stable, had nowhere to lie his head, washed his disciples' feet, and ultimately suffered the humility of dying on the cross for the sins of others. There is much here about humility, which we would do well to pay attention to. She goes on in the second half of verse 48 and 49. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary is full of praise for God and calls herself blessed because he's done such wonderful things for her. But I ask myself, actually, what is the wonderful thing that God has done? Well, he's chosen her to be made pregnant out of wedlock, which then was viewed far more seriously than it is today, perhaps. And bear this remarkable child who is described as a son of the Most High. It's quite a scary prospect indeed. She has just embarked on what can only be described as a, as a social, physical, spiritual, and emotional roller coaster ride. And she says, all generations will call me blessed. 
She talks about these great things and it seems almost incongruous. But I think this is, going back to what I mentioned before, this is part of this attitude of faith which is so pleasing to God. To be allowed to serve him and be part of his plan should bring that sense of blessing and honor to us. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul who considered it an honor to suffer for the gospel. But in these verses also, especially in 49, you see that Mary is almost kind of representative of the nation. The mighty one has done great things for me. She almost stands as a representative figure for the nation and those who will come behind her in faith. She identifies with the people. God had delivered the Israelites from Egypt. He'd given them the law. He made them a special people, his special ambassadors. And she is kind of riding on this, but also taking it forward in that she'll have a role in the remarkable extension of all of that to the Gentiles. She is, if you like, the first of the new kingdom community which will be announced by John the Baptist and brought in by her son, Jesus Christ. Looking at the second half of verse 48, here's a wee question for us at Christmas time. Do we call Mary blessed? For most of us, I think Mary has pretty much a sort of walk-on, walk-off part, almost like an extra or a cameo in a film. Now, we cannot go to this extreme of venerating her and calling her mother of God or Theotokos. But perhaps if we studied her life and paid more attention to her appearances in the Gospels, we might understand her greatness as a woman of faith and a faithful mother of a most unusual son and grasp indeed why she considered herself blessed and why she is an example to us. And it goes on in verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. I think in the context of mercy or grace, or or the theology of the Bible, extend is a great word. Extend has this sense of, well, extending, but of moving out and and including and kind of being unstoppable, like something poured onto the floor and and running out. That's the sense I have, this sense of God's lavish generosity. And it's an extending mercy. I think it's a wonderful concept to think on. God is in this business of extending mercy to those who acknowledge him in humility. Now, when I see these words generation to generation, I don't think there's anything magical here or automatic. And I know that some Christians get very hung up on this whole generational thing. Let's be careful. I think what's going on here is actually quite simple, or theoretically quite simple at least. As people fear the Lord and communicate the truth to their friends and their family and their children and so on, then faith is passed on down within society. And as I see the children here this morning singing, I was praying for them. May the faith go down from generation to generation. It is part of our awesome responsibility as Christians, whether we're parents or not, to to influence those around us, the younger people around us, that they should fear God and honor him. We need to leave this legacy of faith to those who will come after us. Now, it doesn't always work out exactly as we hope. And of course, ultimately, those that we love, those that we care for, must come to God on their own terms. But our job is to commend this faith to those that we meet, those in our circle of influence. Our job is to to commend and pass on this faith to them, which is presumably what Mary's own parents had done for her. Now, I look at the next five verses from 51 to 55, kind of in the way that I look at some of the Proverbs, perhaps. These ideas are not spiritual or religious laws. You can't put God in the dock for not fulfilling these letter by letter. I think these are summaries of history and they're they're statements of aspiration. 
they're sort of summarizing that what God has done and, and what we'd like God to do in the future and the sort of God that, that we know that, that is the God to whom we belong. So they're, they're general statements, but they encapsulate an aspiration, a hope, a feeling of this is where we should go in God. And they also give us a kind of insight into the kind of people that we should be. And there's so much here which draws on the Old Testament, of course, and which resonates later with the teaching of Christ. It's kind of a spooky feeling to see what Mary is saying, knowing that so much of this is now going to be tied up with what Christ will say when he has grown up and serving in his ministry. Verse 51, he's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Mary knew the history of her people. She knows about Abraham and the Exodus and the formation of the nation and the return of the people from Babylon. She knows about the Lord's sovereign work in the lives of David and Elijah and Rahab and Ruth and goodness knows how many other people. How important it is that we know our spiritual history. How important it is that this sense of spiritual history informs and develops our faith. History is not bunk. Henry Ford was wrong. Because the God of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 is our God now in Singapore and in Sheffield. And while I teach at Singapore Bible College, I note that one of the weaknesses of modern evangelicalism is our lack of history. We are a people without a heritage, in a sense, floating along in a vacuum. We need to be aware and indeed treasure our heritage. Heritage that is found in the Bible, to be sure, but also beyond. You see, God did not stop working at the end of Revelation. Even a cursory view of church history will show us how indeed he has performed mighty deeds. And this verse also expresses God's complete intolerance of idolatry of any kind. The kind of mentality which brings us to try to take a stand against God and place the self at the center. And you can see multiple resonances here with, well, just about every part of scripture you can think of. Of course, Hannah's prayer says similar things. And if you're familiar with Psalm 73, you have this portrait of the faithful believer struggling at the apparently easy lives of the proud. Go back home and read Psalm 73 before you have your lunch. This, this guy is in agony at, at how easy it is to be rich and proud and haughty. And only when he goes into the sanctuary does he realize the proud will not stand. They will fall and they will be judged. And in the teaching of the very child inside Mary's room, there is so much about the need for humility. And there's the, 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 the inversion and the deconstruction of human categories of rich and poor and first and last. And God's rejection of idolatry is a theme which runs right through from Genesis to Revelation. In a sense, this is a statement of the, the heart of the human problem, which is the problem of the human heart, the urge to rebel and declare independence and choose our own gods. In verse 52 and 53, we see this kind of dichotomy going on here. You have the rulers and you have the humble, you have the hungry and you have the rich. There are two kind of polarized groups here, if you like. Now, I think this is not the idea of putting people into this category or that, or that category. There's a degree of exaggeration here and simplification to make a point. And you can see very, very similar things in the teaching of Christ. But what, we are, what we're finding, what we're picking up from this and what Christ says later on is this. God does not subscribe to our human categories. Our categories which define worthiness or acceptance. God does not buy into our stuff 
about being rich or looking acceptable or being the kind of people like us or whatever it is. God is very annoying. He messes the thing up. He breaks the categories. He's inclusive, welcoming all who place their faith in him. Because Christ is bringing in a new order, which builds on and fulfills so much of what the Old Testament law and prophets had already told Israel. And you can see that in his first public sermon in Luke 4. The whole thing is new. He's breaking all the boxes. It's a new kingdom order which is coming, which only has one category. Faith in God through Jesus Christ. The last two verses, 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel. And here the servant is now named as Israel. Remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So the servant theme reappears here. But now, of course, as I said, Israel is, is named explicitly. And you can see in the passage, if you like, there's a kind of an alternation going on between Mary and the nation as God's servant. It's Mary, it's also the nation of Israel. And we know, of course, as I already mentioned, it also points to Christ. And we know now, do we not, because of what Jesus has done, that which could only have been hazy to Mary at best. God is merciful to the descendants of Abraham, as in verse 55, which includes us now in a spiritual sense, as we read in Galatians 3. So in this verse, this is the, the, the reminder and the, the promise that what was said to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, is now coming about. And you can see it also developing in Revelation 7. This inclusiveness based on faith, this diversity based on faith and trust, a new order based on new categories. So in this verse, you see you look backwards and forwards. You look back to the history of Israel and forwards to the kingdom of God, including the church, all those who place their faith in Christ. So in conclusion, I wish I could talk more about Mary. As a faithful Protestant, I wish I could talk more about Mary, a woman of great faith. Mary, a woman who is, if you like, a representative of God's people as servant. And in this passage also we have like a kind of a snapshot, almost like the trailer of a film, which says that God is working out his plan in his own way, in his own time. This, this very short song, it ties together so much from Genesis to Revelation of what God has done, is doing, and will do. And I think another theme which emerges very strongly here is this gratitude to God and humility before him which I think is so crucial as we serve him. I tell my students, if there's one takeaway, if there's one thing you take with you when you leave this college, let it be humility. God cannot work through proud people. I've seen it myself in my own life. The closer we get to him, the more willing we are to be humble and lay aside the things which mean so much to us, the more we can be used. Humility, the H word, is the number one takeaway, I think, from, from Mary's life and service. So this Christmas, let us rejoice in God together as our souls glorify him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage and we thank you for this remarkable woman. Lord, let us go back into the scriptures and read about her and understand her. She is a human being just like us. humble, lowly, but with total faith in you. Let us consider her as a fellow believer, nothing more and nothing less. See how her example, her life, and her faith can point us to you and help us to come deeper and deeper into you.
And grant us humility, we pray, before you and before our fellow human beings. Amen.